Well, I'm very glad that all of you guys decided to come out and hang out with us to the unofficial official large group. You didn't have to be here, but very glad you are. Um, again, my name is Jacob Durham. I'm one of the interns at RUF, and uh, I'm really excited to have the opportunity to preach. So thanks to Wilson for not being here. That's why I'm up here. So um, if you would go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter one, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 25. And uh, while you turn there, um, I just ask that you keep your Bibles open because at the end of the day, it really matters what the word says, not so much about what I say. So. Uh, let's go ahead and read Matthew 1, 18 through 25. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you so much for your good word. We thank you that you cared so much for us, that you gave it to us, that you would reveal at all who you are and your majesty, that we can look back upon you and see what you've done and see your faithfulness on display in it. I pray that as we come here tonight, that you would reveal this even more to us and that we would become more convinced of the wonderful work that you're doing in your kingdom on this earth through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit, who you send to help. Lord, I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Have you ever felt like you're waiting for God to do something, something that he said he was going to do? Think about how did that make you feel about God? This is the situation that the Israelites were in about this time, and then Matthew's writing this. So Jesus is about to be born, and the people of Israel were waiting. They were desperately waiting for God to do what he said he was going to do. And at this point, before Christ's birth, the nation of Israel, they'd kind of been through the ringer. They had been exiled from their land and then allowed to return, but then exiled again and conquered as the world's powers changed again and again. First by the Babylonians and then the Persians and the Greeks and Egyptians, Syria. And then finally, at this time, by the Romans. And the temple, the place where God dwelt with his people, it had been raided and plundered and desecrated by these world powers. Right? The Israelites had endured much suffering, and it seemed like God was so far away. He hadn't even spoken with them through the prophets for over 400 years. And it did not really seem that clear whether or not God was going to fulfill his word. Right? And don't we experience some of these same things? There's times when God seems so far from us, like he's not faithful to what he promises. There's times when he seems so far from your experiences, right? I mean, even think about this Christmas season and going home. Maybe you're returning to a family with strife at home that it makes it difficult to be there or with someone, someone that you've lost that's close or, or maybe a season of failure makes it difficult to look your parents in the eye and tell them how your semester really was, right? Those moments, those seasons, those are hopeless. 
So what is there to hold on to in those times? Well, the Israelites, they had God's promises and they looked back upon them and that's what they held on to. They had to believe that the snake crusher promised in Genesis 3.15 would come and to God's promise that through David, he would establish his eternal kingdom on earth or to the words of the prophets like Isaiah that the Messiah would come. So the Israelites were looking forward to this. But we today as Christians, we could rest assured that God is working in these seasons because we can look back and see that God did work for those Israelites. And while it may seem like God is far off, regardless of, of how long we wait, however deafening that silence feels, right? the Bible teaches that through Christ, we have God with us. He's present through him. So we can look back and see that God has worked, that he is working, and that he will work. So rest assured that he is working even where it seems that he isn't in your life. So, and that's also why the passage immediately before this, if you look at the first part of Matthew 1, it's a genealogy. And Matthew puts it there to remind us of how much hopelessness and sin that God has worked through to bring his son to us. So Matthew reminds us to look at how God upholds his word and to see his faithfulness to his people. And so we can be assured that he is as faithful to his word today and we can see his faithfulness to his people, right? So <clears throat> that's exactly what we have to hold on to today, but only better because we're looking back on the work that God has done through his son, Christ. They were looking forward to Christ. Now we can look back on knowing that it is already done. But that doesn't mean our hearts are instantly and totally comforted. Everything becomes right. But this is the goodness that as Christians that we have to hold on to. So remember the work of Christ and his promises and that he is faithful. He does remember his people. God is working as much now as he was then. So it's in this time, in this general feeling, that Christ the Savior is born into. Um, but what exactly is the Savior to look like? How is he going to be for his people? This is really what Matthew is getting at in this birth narrative here. And it gives us a fantastic picture of what the essence of Jesus Christ is, it really is. And so first, he's a just Savior. So look back at the passage. Look at verses 18 and 19. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So look at the situation Joseph's in. So here he is betrothed to Mary, which being betrothed is similar to what engagement is today for us, but it was much more binding. And after this happened, there was kind of no turning back from it besides divorce. So while they were not fully married, right, they had not come together as husband and wife, being betrothed was, was a lot more like the first part of marriage than it is like engagement for us today. And so it's in this period in their life that Mary becomes pregnant. So how do people become pregnant? Not a trick question, right? There's only one way. So what is Joseph to assume besides that his wife has been unfaithful to him and slept with another man? That's a pretty terrible situation to be in. Imagine how you would feel, right? You think you found the person you're going to spend the rest of your life with, and then they seemingly throw it away for nothing, and they break all the trust that was formed. How do you feel in that situation? Angry, hurt, betrayed, vengeful probably? That's definitely how Joseph felt too. You could imagine he, he would have wanted the most hurt to come to Mary. And in Deuteronomy 2, uh, it lays out the Jewish civil punishment for adultery. And if the, the woman is consenting in the adulterous behavior, then she was to suffer the same punishment as the man, which was stoning. 
right? This was a very serious offense that had happened. And Joseph could have had this done to her. It, it would have been a, a pretty natural response to this level of betrayal. And probably what most of us would have wanted in this situation. But look at how Joseph is described, right? He's a just man, unwilling to put her to shame. Therefore, he resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph here in these verses, he's characterized by the very things that will mark his son, the Savior. Joseph is displaying the justice of God in righteousness and in mercy in a time where his sinful heart probably would just want vengeance. So how does he display these things? Well, first, to to give righteousness a definition, righteousness is a standing before God. It's one marked with obedience to God and his law, caring about what God says and and holding on to it. It's about how we act in our upholding of God's law. And just as importantly, it's about our attitude and desire for God. So obviously, Joseph isn't perfectly righteous by himself, but he displays it well here because he cares for the law and for what it says about infidelity. And he's not willing to ignore what appears to be Mary's sinful behavior. That's why he resolves to divorce her. And yet Joseph more fully reflects the character of the son in his display of mercy to Mary while upholding righteousness. So rather than have her stoned at the worst or more likely publicly shamed in their community, forever marked as an unclean sinner, unworthy of marriage, he decides to divorce her quietly. If Mary was actually guilty of the sin it appeared she was, she would have had a life of total shame in front of her if not for the mercy of Joseph. And this is just such a beautiful display of the mercy that Christ shows to us. Right? If this sinful guy, Joseph, can display such mercy to Mary, how much more does Christ show to us? Right? <clears throat> and unlike Mary, we are actually guilty. So there's this understanding of, of God's justice that is so crucial here. Right? The gospel is so radical because we can be such wretched sinners and still stand before God, and he remains just. How can that be? Because the justice of God is upheld in the work of Jesus, not in our own, right? His death on the cross, that's where Jesus took on all the guilt and shame that we were due. And, and think back to Joseph here. He, he likely would have been taking upon a lot of shame upon himself because of not publicly and harshly distancing himself from Mary. People would have probably felt less of him for not doing that in the Jewish community. And now think about even more what Christ has done. Right? He took on not some of our shame, all of our shame. And he bore the punishment that we're deserving on the cross. And so to give a classic metaphor of, of how this justice works out, um, imagine a court of law. There's a guy who's before the judge. He's on trial for a, a huge amount of, of speeding fines. Maybe he's sold drugs. He's committed armed robbery a bunch. Or maybe he's even murdered people. Right? This guy is guilty of some serious crimes. And he owes an unpayable amount of money and fines. And the judge can look at him and say, these are some pretty serious and horrific crimes you've committed. Um, And now, although I know you're guilty, someone has come in and paid your fines in full. So you're free to go. And the judge is still just because the fine has been paid. The debt has been wiped out and the punishment was taken. So we can walk free. And that is exactly what Christ does on the cross for us. So now we can walk free by the mercy of righteousness. And, And the righteousness of God is fully upheld in that too. And Joseph, in a much smaller way, does a similar thing. Rather than let his wife take on all the shame upon herself, he decides to bear some of it. But Christ goes even far beyond what Joseph does for Mary. But more than that, not only does Christ forgive us and meet us in our shame, he adds to us his righteousness. So not only are we free from our sins, but now we have all the work and perfection of Christ applied to us. Now when he looks at you, when the Father looks at you, 
He doesn't just see someone who's not guilty. He sees someone who is righteous. There's no one, nothing that offers more hope than what Jesus does through what he did on that cross. Every other religion and philosophy, the world, it just tells you to do. That's the way to escape your problems. That's the way to get rid of the guilt and shame. You do. They say atone for yourself. Make it right yourself. That path, it, it doesn't lead to peace because you can never do enough. How much better is Christ to offer perfect justice and mercy? Not telling you to do, but saying, I have done. So that's the justice of Christ's character. And Joseph is reflecting it to us here pretty well. But what else does this passage say about the soon-to-be incarnate Savior? Well, central to that truth of the justice of Christ is, is quite simply, Christ is Savior. Okay, look back at verse 20 and 21. It says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, so the angel visits Joseph in a dream and tells him the truth about the child in Mary's womb. And the central description of that child is that he will save his people, right? So what is a savior? Well, put simply, it's someone who saves someone from a situation in which they can't save themselves. So I saw this cool story of a guy who, after summoning Mount Everest, uh, and starting the descent, he became delusional because of the lack of oxygen up there. And he, right, he became delusional. He was unable to see very well. And eventually he lost consciousness. And so the team that he was with, they waited for hours and hours for this guy to wake up. But eventually they just had to assume that he was dead. And they left him alone. They took his pack and his oxygen and his tent. And they packed it up and left him on the side of the path. Left for dead. But the next day, another expedition group was ascending. And they came upon this guy conscious. He was sitting up and talking to them. The man was alive, but still delusional and totally unable to hike down the, down the camp himself. So the group, the leader of the group decided they're going to get this guy back down. And they literally carried him off of the mountain back to the camp and saved his life. So that guy on the mountain, he did not have any ability to do anything. He, he couldn't get down to camp and save himself. Right? You and me, Joseph and Mary, Israel and the church... We're like that guy. We're all in the same position as this man, lost and alone, unable to do anything about it. And this is the saving work that Christ has come to accomplish. This is the purpose for which he was born into the world, to come and save his people from a hopeless situation we can't save ourselves from. But as the angel says, Christ is not just born to save his people. He's born to save his people from their sins. And that's where the analogy starts to break down a little bit, because unlike that guy on the mountain, we're not... uh, we're not, un, we're not conscious, you know, breathing or anything like that. We're, we're dead already. We've been lying face down in the snow for hours, unconscious, not breathing, right? Dead since we were born. But so the Bible is very clear about the seriousness of sin. Or Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. It's what separates us from God. It's the killer of his people, which through Adam we ushered in. And it's the opposite of the nature of God. Right? If you and I have sinned, which we have, then we're dead in them, unable to do anything about it. And that's why Christ had to come down from heaven. He didn't come to help you along your walk or come to give you a helpful word of encouragement in your story or 
to come provide some good moral principles for you to follow. No, Christ came to raise you to life. He came to bring the Father the utmost glory and does so in the saving of his people. And I only partially quoted Romans 6.23 because the rest of it says, but the free gift of God is eternal, eternal life. God promised a way for his people. And this is how he has done it. And think about how great news this is. Christ came to rescue his people from their sin. The implication of that truth is that if Christ came to save people from their sins, then there's no sin that's too great for him to forgive. There's things that that you've done, that I've done, things that you thought are sin, things that when you think of them immediately fill you with shame and guilt and things that are so hard to admit even to yourself. The greatness of this truth is that there's nothing you've done or can do that would separate you from the work of Jesus Christ, because this is what he came to do. It's the very essence of his mission of being born into the world. Right? What kind of savior would he be if he looked at some sins and thought, mm, you know, that's just a little too bad for me? Or, you know, actually, I don't associate with those kinds of sinners and that kind of sin. He'd be one failing at his mission, right? But aren't those the lies that we so easily fall into all the time? Right? Oh, that one sin, that one night, or, or this pattern of sins, that's too much for him to forgive. If you're a Christian, you can be completely and totally assured that every sin you will have and, and, and have committed is forgiven because the perfect Savior has perfectly completed his mission, right? Perfect Savior, sinful people. Isn't that the message that sits up there every time we walk in? That's been the whole message of our semester. And if you're not a Christian, know that Christ came and died on that cross for sinners who have done things exactly like you. If, if you accept you're a sinner and there's nothing you can do to save yourself, Repent and believe that Christ has done all the work to save you. Jesus says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. All you have to do is simply believe in him and his work. That's the beauty of the gospel. So simple and so powerful. And that man on the mountain, right? He he could do nothing to save himself and to get himself off the mountain. Someone had to come rescue him. Would he have been better off if he had pushed aside the rescuers and tried to descend themselves, <clears throat> himself? No, he wouldn't have made it, right? Christ came to save. Let him save. All we have to do is believe. <clears throat> okay, and then Matthew affirms the message of this, uh, of, of the angel, by bringing in this Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah 7. And this prophecy brings in the last element of Jesus that we see here in this section. And that is that Jesus is a near savior. So verse 22 and 23, they say, uh, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the word Emmanuel, like Matthew tells us, means God with us. And it's a title that was um, probably not used for Jesus while he was alive that we're aware of, but there's no question that it is a very accurate title to describe Jesus. And its use in this prophecy in its context is sort of unexpected, but it's beautiful as God moves towards his people. And so the context of this prophecy is really important. That's why I had Rachel read the, the fuller section of it before. But God promises here to give his people a sign that he'll be near to them. So this is about 720 BC, and the southern kingdom of Judah uh, is under threat of invasion by the wicked northern kingdom of Israel, and their allies are wrong. And the king of Judah, Ahaz, was also uh, an especially terrible king himself. Um, he, rather than lead his people to have faith in the word of the Lord, 
who had promised not to let them fall to invasion, uh, Ahaz led them to put their faith in the Assyrians and in their foreign gods and in their chariots and their armies. Right? And, and in verse 14 before, uh, if you remember, um, it says the Lord was weary by Ahaz's unfaithfulness to him and also wearied his people. And it's in the, the face of this unfaithfulness that God promises to be near his people. And that's kind of crazy. I mean, where we, where we would expect God to judge and cast down, he promises to draw near and to restore. He promises to save his people. And despite the wrongs of the king and his unfaithfulness and the people's as well, God will restore his presence among his people. And that's pretty much exactly where the Israelites were in this passage and where we so often are now in our lives. Right? The Israelites were waiting, but they were trying so hard to make things happen themselves. And in our unfaithfulness and in our sin, that's exactly what we're doing. And that's exactly when God decides to move towards us. So this prophecy is partially fulfilled in Isaiah's immediate future, but it also is much more fully and completely fulfilled in Christ, which is exactly why Matthew uh, includes it in this section. <clears throat> Sorry, I lost my place. Um, but yeah, that's why Matthew includes it here. Matthew sees that in the birth of Jesus, this is a time where God was drawing near. That being the Son of God and a human, Jesus brings God, Jesus brings himself closer than his people could have ever imagined. And the emphasis uh, Matthew makes here at the beginning uh, says that all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That in this time, where it seemed unclear if God would draw near, if he would be faithful to his promises and to his people, that the answer to the Israelites' question and to our question of whether God is working is, yes, absolutely he's working. And so the main truth that Matthew brings out here is the fact that God drew near to his people through the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. This isn't a distant God who's sitting up on high, playing from the sidelines, allowing his people to struggle while he shows little interest or care for him. This is a God who cares so deeply, who loves his people so much that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Right? John three sixteen. This is an active God. He, he's not going to let his people waste away. He's going to rescue them and save them. Right? That, that's a truth that we need to let sink so deeply into our souls. That God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, loved you so much. He was willing to descend from heaven and take on human form so that he can create a path for him to dwell with you, with his people. And this is even far different from what the Israelites knew. It was so much closer and nearer than God had ever made himself. For the average Jew, they didn't even know the close dwelling presence of their God. They experienced God in the temple, right? They would go there and they would offer sacrifices to God for their sins. And they weren't even the ones doing this, right? The, the priests were the ones who were mediating between God and the people. But even the priests didn't really know the close dwelling of God like this. The only time they were able to experience that close dwelling was when the high priest, one guy, went into the Holy of Holies where God dwelt one time per year to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. And now because of what Jesus Christ has done coming to earth, living as a man dying on the cross, as Christians we have just an infinitely closer dwelling with God than any of the Jews did. Because of what God did in sending the helper, the Holy Spirit, to live in his people. Right? As one person says, it, no longer is the presence of God confined to the back rooms of the physical temple. Now his presence is among his people because of the complete work of Christ. And even more than this, 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 
Christ is so close to his people. He's drawn so near that we're now one with him, right? And all the time, it's so different from what was experienced in the Old Testament. And, and, and Christian, in these times of suffering, in times where it seems unclear if God cares at all, if he's simply a distant being in the clouds, that is the truth that we have to hold on to. That the Father loved you so much that he sent his son as a man to die so that he could dwell with you. What a great God. And God's nearness to his people is also wonderfully shown in that God himself, the Son, Jesus Christ, became a man, right? At the beginning of this section, Matthew says, the birth of Christ took place in this way, right? <clears throat> Not some other way, this way. So Jesus didn't descend from heaven as a fully grown man with a body made in a similar way only to Adam, right? Detached from the everyday real experiences that, that you and I have as regular people have. He didn't come in a manner different from any other person who's ever lived. Like he was born. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but then he was born just like you and I. Why does it matter that he was born? Why couldn't he have just descended from the clouds already a fully grown man? Because this is a savior who's perfectly able to represent us in every way because he's experienced everything that we do yet without sin. Christ isn't like Superman falling from a meteor from the sky, all these superpowers that make him better and stronger and more able than anyone else around him. Right? He is human, exactly like you and me. He knows what it's like to grow up with siblings who are annoying and not perfect. Right? He knows what it's like to have to learn a new skill and not be great at it at first. He knows what it's like to have imperfect parents, to feel the pain and loss of a close relative and friend, to feel the temptation to do something you know is wrong, and to feel the anguish of betrayal. Right? This, this is a Savior who is drawn so near that he has experienced all the pain and suffering that his people have, right? What a savior. He did what Adam failed to do and perfectly represents us before the father. So Jesus is a man to be born, right? But Matthew also has another point of emphasis that I've kind of skimmed over until now. And it's that Jesus's conception wasn't exactly like every other man's. No, Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's mentioned a bunch of times, right? Uh, Matthew says it immediately, before we're even led to believe that Mary maybe sinned, right? He says right off the bat that um, what was in her is conceived by the Holy Spirit in verse 18. And the angel declares it to Joseph in his dream in verse 20. And then the quote from Isaiah uh, 714 in verse 23, that also includes it there. So why is there such this emphasis? Why is it in here so often? Why couldn't Jesus have just been born from a regular earthly father? The answer to that is twofold, and it ties in extremely well with everything else that we've looked at. <clears throat> That's why Matthew put it in here. So firstly, it declares the divine, sinless origin and nature of Jesus. That's one thing that's very clear in the teachings of Jesus, that he is the Son of God. In John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The reason the virgin birth is brought up so many times here is partly because it's to make abundantly clear what his origins are so that no one can challenge whether or not he is God or not. If Joseph was Jesus' biological father, it would have been pretty easy for the people around him to challenge whether or not he was divine or actually sinless, right? And Jesus had brothers and sisters who were very clearly not perfect. But equally as importantly, Jesus' divine origins and the virgin birth, they speak to the fact that man cannot save himself. This has already been an important point we've touched on a lot, but it's just so clear here, right? It has taken God's power in the work of history and the words of his prophets and in the work of a miracle birth 
to bring about the opportunity for salvation. At no point was there ever a way for man to make a path for himself to become righteous. There's no man or ever woman ever conceived who could live a perfect life because sin is built into us from the beginning. And even if you could live a perfect life, you couldn't save anyone but yourself, right? It required the direct intervention of God into the world by sending a savior who was both God and man in order for his people to have any hope for salvation. The virgin birth tells us that salvation is something we can't grasp for ourselves. It's something that God must accomplish, that he brings to us. But not being able to save yourself isn't actually bad news, right? Have you ever tried to live a day without doing anything wrong, without sinning? I I remember this question was posed to me when I was like nine or 10 at a youth camp when I was like elementary school. And the leaders, they asked, who here has ever lived an hour without sinning? And a lot of the hands went up, a lot of the kids around me put their hands up. And then they asked, how about a whole day without sinning? Some hands were still up, but a few went down for sure. And then they asked, well, how about a week without sinning? There's maybe a couple, but they were definitely, definitely lying. So, um, But their point with that, with that question at this camp was um, that Jesus just wants you not to sin. And if we try hard enough, we cannot sin. Um, that is absolutely not what the Bible teaches, right? It is not possible for us to sin. Right? We sin all the time. And especially as a bunch of nine and ten-year-olds, no, no, there's no chance. So, I mean, even just think about one of the Ten Commandments. Think about the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus looks at this commandment and he, he sort of expands what it's getting at. And he says, in, in Mark twelve thirty, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. All right, how often is God the most important aspect of your life? Receiving all of your praise and worship. Sometimes. But definitely not all the time, which is what the standard of that law is, right? When we're not upholding this, we're sinning, which is so often. So if salvation could be a thing, or if it was the thing that had to be accomplished by man, we would all be failing and we'd be kind of screwed. So that's why it's good news that God has done it himself, right? We can't fall into the temptation to think that, uh, you know, I'm not that bad, or, or God should look past all these little sins I have. I've never done anything that bad. Or that you can do good enough works to even it out. One sin is all it takes to separate us from the holy God. I mean, the Ten Commandments, if you just ran through them quickly, uh, they would show you just how high the pile of sins that you have are. Let the truth of God's work through his Son determine your eternal destiny, not your own works. Finally, the end of this passage is Joseph's response to what the angel told him. So like we previously looked at, Joseph was a just and righteous man which lets us infer that he probably knew very well the Old Testament scriptures, probably was pretty aware of the passage that Matthew's quoting here, and definitely the other Old Testament prophecies that relate to the Messiah. <clears throat> right? He knew of the promises that God had made to David, which he's in the lineage of. He knew of the, the work that God had already done in rescuing his people from Egypt and bringing them into the promised land and protecting a remnant of them after the exile. He knew of the, the many promises of God, that he would save his people and establish his reign over the earth. So to Joseph, this must have been a pretty incredible moment to take in. His wife, who he thought had been unfaithful to him, was in fact pregnant with his savior, right? That's a big plot twist. So how does Joseph respond to this incredible news? He obeyed. Look at verse 24 and 25. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. 
He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son. And he called his name Jesus. So Joseph changes his mind about divorcing her because he believes the angel. He believes his God. Instead, he takes her and waits for Jesus' birth to consummate their marriage, which is even more than what the angel said. And as we saw before, Joseph understands the intention of the command. He, he remembers all he knows about what God's doing, and he faithfully obeys in this way as he waits for the coming of his son, his Savior. Joseph's actions here again reflect the obedience that will mark Jesus' life. But it also reflects what our response to the Savior should be. Right? Listen to the Lord. Listen to Jesus and respond in repentance and belief in him and obeying the word of the Lord. Joseph reflects the whole point of what the Christmas celebration is even about. Right? What is the point of us celebrating Christmas as Christians? Right? It's to remember the faithfulness of God through the birth of his son into the world. Joseph remembered and had faith because of it. This season, as Christians, remember God's faithfulness to you. It may be a dark time in your life, but remember what he did for the Israelites who had been waiting for the Lord to do or speak for over 400 years and the faithfulness he showed them in sending his son. He showed the same faithfulness to you. Remember your gift of salvation. Hold tightly to the faithfulness God has shown you in sending his son as a man who was born to save you. Remember the just Savior has drawn near to you. Christmas is a season of remembrance, of praising God for the good work that he's done through sending his son. So, remember the just Savior has drawn near to you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so grateful for your work, for your faithfulness to such sinful people. Lord, I pray that as finals come and go and as we... We get ready to return home and celebrate Christmas, that you would let all of us hold on to and to remember your faithfulness, that we would have the accomplishments of Christ be central to our lives or in whatever season we may be going through. I ask that your upholding of the word and your promises will be what we turn to in those times of great need, God. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you.